Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Episode two, Precept Responsibly. Joined by my co-host, Jason Mordino, and our guest of today, Dr. Ali McBride. Our topic for today is going to be focusing on incorporating and building up projects and research into learner rotations. And we know this is a, a huge challenge for many of us in the preceptor world where departmental needs sometimes prohibit you. Um, but before we give a, a, an introduction on the topic and discussion, I think the most important thing is what we're drinking for, for this discussion. Um, so I am sipping on uh, a Tito's and soda, one of my favorite drinks. Um, and we, we told each other we would have our favorite drink for this recording. So I am sipping on a Tito's and soda. Uh, Dr. Mordino, Dr. McBride, what is your uh, drink of choice for this episode? Thanks for the intro, Hughes. Uh, I am having uh, my favorite uh, athletic brewing uh, first ride. It's a dark, non-alcoholic beer. Um, it's phenomenally tasting. Uh, but Dr. McBride, uh, how about you? Well, it's a it's a good question to start off the the afternoon, right? As we would say, unless you're living in like Palm Springs or Hawaii, where it's morning and you're you're probably drinking a little bit of a Bloody Mary already. But for my drink of, of the jujur, as we would say, it's going to be a nice mojito, you know, enjoying the sun and just relaxing on the beach if that was the case. But, you know, as we're all in probably in an office discussing things at times. Uh, so we'll just actually use the, the mojito on the Hawaiian front, enjoying the ocean at this point in time. So, again, I have different types of mojitos. There's many unique ones. And when I was in Tucson, I had a liking to them we did get some Mexican kind of breeds in there as well. Fantastic, gentlemen. Uh, well, I, you know, I don't want to hold up and, and spend all day talking about our, our drinks of choice. We'll enjoy them throughout the episode, but let's set the stage for, for what we're going to be talking about today. So I alluded to this already. Institutions have a number of different projects that they need to get done, right? Our, our pharmacy specialists want to publish, they want to get involved with conferences, they want to build their, their academic success and brand. But, you know, time is limited in a day. And while we all wish there could be more than 24 hours in a day um, to get this stuff done, it's always limited and every day becomes limited. And occasionally there's different expectations for what your own institution wants and how it differs from the individual. So furthermore, institutions have variability themselves. Um, some institutions focus more on quality improvement work and building up a framework to institutional success. Others are more supportive of research initiatives for their specialty department. Let's say, for instance, myself in, the, in a hematology or oncology division. And ultimately, taking that one step further, it can be really challenging to get to a point of balance and figuring out how to do that. Now, let's couple this with taking different types of learners, right? As a preceptor, you're always going to have learners. You're going to have learners with different expectations that you take on rotation, residents, students, fellows. Maybe they're not even pharmacy students and, and residents. They're medical residents. And, you know, have you ever been in a situation where you feel so overcome by these projects on day to day and the learner just gets buried and they feel they're, they're left alone? Or maybe you spend so much time with your learner um, going over patients, doing topic discussions that you don't get your day to day done um, and your manager's expectations done. 
um, and what are what are different. So this is this really sets the stage for what we're going to be talking about today. Again, I'm lucky to be joined. Jason and I are both lucky to be joined by Dr. Ali McBride. Um, so I'd like to give him a, a formal introduction. Dr. McBride, if you can tell, tell us uh, where you are, where you're coming from, and, and a little bit about your experience. No, no problem. So uh, previously, I actually served as the University of Arizona Clinical Coordinator for the Cancer Center down in Tucson, Arizona. And before that, I worked at a few different institutions, including Ohio State and also WashU, Barnes Jewish Hospital. So I was very lucky to, you know, truly engage with students and learners and, you know, not only just students, but also um, our medical fellows, medical residents, our PGY1s and PGY2s, and also other colleagues as well. So I've had a, a vast array of opportunities when it comes to the discussion on this in my current, in that current role at the University of Arizona Cancer Center as Florida, because we saw so many issues pop up. And this is one of those things where you're working. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we had a board, we have a laundry list of questions. Some of those would be pure research, but in truth, um, looking at my history, what has happened is the idea of research as its own has really grown because we're dealing with issues with payers. We're dealing with issues with institutional based perceptions. Again, um, Dr. Hughes, great discussions already with those quality improvement projects. <clears throat> but also we're dealing with now new models of care, like in alternative payment models, OCM models, ACO, which you're very familiar with at your hospital, right, Dave, in regards to this, you know, you're looking at these ACO models for implementation. So when it comes to oncology, you know, we are ripe for these discussions because it's not just being inpatient, right? We are dealing with outpatient ambulatory settings, especially pharmacy settings and inpatient settings, all in this flux of transition. So from that perspective, I kind of actually touched upon this a little bit too much already. Um, we had done a lot of these work pieces at our facility and we really implemented not only um, ourselves to do this, but one of the key pieces is working with learners. So students, uh, residents to get these points addressed to. Right now, I'm actually, I took a position at the director for HUR for Bristol-Myers Squibb. So. For our listeners out there, and myself included, um, I know you have a long CV with a lot of projects on it. What are, are some of the things that you've done, um, and, and how have you incorporated learners into some of those things that you've done in all of those positions that you've had, just as a, a place to start? No, that's great. I think you know one of the biggest things is we are at a fulcrum point, so we ourselves move our fulcrum almost like a seesaw. So with all of these ideas that we have and also precepting students and also precepting for projects, the key piece is, you know, how do you leverage that with your daily institutional duties? And that's really tough because you have to address a, how much time do you have? Do you really have 24 hours in a day or do you make it 27, 28, right? Do you multitask? Do you focus on a project or two? These are all great questions when we're taking a look at it. So it's really the balance that you have to address when trying to address these studies, maybe QI capabilities as well. So I think the first thing that you do is when you're trying to figure out what that balance is with yourself, with the institution, um, you do have to really push yourself to say, who is the right person for these type of studies? But also at the same time, you are delegating this information with your team members, because again, this is not just a one-off, I'm one single preceptor, you do with a team of other people, is the fact that is that student if they're starting off, because I had a lot of PGY1 students, or sorry, first year students or second year students take on oncology projects, which is absolutely unheard of, right? You're almost, 
you don't even know oncology yet, let alone hematology. You're still working on ACE inhibitors. Yeah, so I'm shocked. You're trying to gauge it, right? I mean, you're like ACE and ARBs, hypertension, diabetes. Okay, that's where they're, they're learning. But that's really where you start is, will that student learn and grow? And do they have responsibilities that would actually allow them to entail that extra work? That's what I look at first. Yeah, no, that's a great place to start. And I think it's a great... Um, opportunity to engage like kind of some of your atypical learners. Um, what things do you use specifically to um, delineate that role? Like what are you looking for, for a resident versus a student versus a PGY2? You know, that, that's, that's a great question. And sometimes it's just a luck of the draw. I wish I could say, you know, I have this kind of predictive model with a multivariate analysis, right. That kind of says, Student A had, you know, an A on their, you know, pharmacotherapy study. They did med, med chem, which I still don't know why it's the actual course anymore, but that's a whole different discussion because we're not doing structures on antibodies, are we? But long story short here, it's really trying to figure out how that person does, how that learner does in terms of interacting with people, in terms of learning the information. That, and I kind of use that first step is, We'll talk about maybe three to five projects when I first kind of go over, like, you know, do you have time on the weekends? Do you have time in the afternoon? Uh, you know, what does your timeline look like? Because right now in this current market, a ton of our students are working just to pay for their, their daily living, right? You know, it's not just supplemented by their student loans. So you have to gauge their degree of interest and also what they can part with in terms of working, you know, maybe three to five hours a week. So with that, you know, I gauge that information and I give them the information about their own type of interest. So we have a lot of people right now, unfortunately, who have been hit by cancer, family members, um, other members, and that's really kind of brought them into oncology, right? That personal touch has brought them into oncology. Same with me. My father died of, of lung cancer at a very young age, and that brought me into oncology. So really talking to those students, getting to know them, getting to them at a personal level, really kind of gauge that interaction piece. And once you start pulling that together, what they can do, what they can't do, that allows you to gauge their interests and also what their focus is. But when they come back for your second meeting after you discussed you know, the project, then they kind of say, oh, well, I did some research. I pulled three to five articles. Once they start saying, well, I looked at these articles, that means you know that person's gonna be moving forward with that. So those are my first couple of inklings about how they're gonna do in a project. Awesome. Thank you, Ollie. One of the things that I always question when we start like building residents into like our academic work, our uh, QI work, et cetera, is how do I balance the needs of that learner along with the work that I'm doing and kind of the, dare I say, like academic brand that I'm building? And, and I'm curious how you've done that because I know you've had a lot of success with your projects and how do you balance kind of the learner's needs with your needs? Oh, Jason, that that actually gives me a little bit of GERD. I'm going to get my omeprazole, my famotidine, and some pharmacists always having pharmacists always having their PPI ready in their pocket, <laughs> right? I mean, I just wish we had injectable pantoprazole still. But anyway, um, you know, it's it's that's the toughest question. I kind of feel like I need more mojitos now, right? Um, I take a step back and I have to say, in truth in order to get the work done, which really helped benefit our cancer center with the student projects that we had, it was never a balance. I never balanced it. I'm gonna be very truthful here. 
I'm going to open up and, you know, I'm going to be like the onion man, right? I'm not the onion girl, but I'll be the onion man here. Start peeling back those little corners and uh, unraveling all the truths. I didn't. So a lot of my work, you know, at our facility, you know, would take my full day. Um, the priority for institution is most likely going to be like patient interaction, addressing um, patient reimbursement, addressing other issues, patient care. So there was no time in my day to allocate to that. It would just be, we have a meeting, that would be the best I had. So I had to do a lot of that work overnight. Um, being very truthful here, it wasn't anything I could say, well, I'm gonna carve out five hours. I could never do that. I mean, and everyone who's a residency director, residency program director, RPC for the coordinator, that's there's barely any time. You do it after hours because the institution demands are the most important. So a lot of this work went on in the afternoons and weekends. You know, I'd call my students on the weekends. We'd actually have precepting calls on the weekends. Like that's the unfortunate limitation. If sites do have a better, you know, type of model where they can actually share time, great. You know, I would love to hear it. But at my site, I couldn't do that. So it really was actually addressing that precepting piece with the student, managing that time for when I could. And then as time grew on with the project, as we developed the project, as we precepted based on the, the student or learner's capabilities, um, their own interest, and also their how they can do the study, I had to build that brand into what is best for myself and the student themselves or student teams. So it was really trying to do a balancing act or a juggling act to get the best information out. And it really took that time. So I have meetings at five, six, seven o'clock at night with the students as well. So again, to be truthful, uh, as I'm putting my hands together, it, I never really balanced it because I didn't have the capabilities to balance it. Just like you talked about before the institutional demands, Dave, you know, this is a, it's a very tough situation. Um, but also my students were able to do, and this is kind of going towards the end of a discussion rather than the beginning, I have students right now who are in the NCN guidelines, right? I have learners who actually have their publications in guideline-based matters. You know, and one thing that you know, Dave and I have talked about before is my same day, Pegfield Grassum studies, I have two of my students in the NCN guidelines. Like that is absolutely incredible. And that's their level of interest as well. So just giving you some, some interesting pieces, but the balancing act is never something that I could actually run correctly. Um, at my site, but others can. So again, just be aware of that. It's never, never one is best. It's just what I want. So sorry, I ran into a run on sentence there, Jason, but it was just one of those things where I think people need to be aware of like the determination and time that people often don't overlook or your institution doesn't even look into uh, to get these projects done. And most of my projects were done against payers. They were to actually help enable our institution to use drug therapies correctly or appropriately as well. well I yeah. think that's a great example. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, you're right. It's different for, for everyone, but I think your outcomes kind of speak to like the dedication of the extra time. So, and I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and maybe backpedal a little bit because, you know, Ali, this is like what your, your same day growth factor project was like phenomenal. Right. And as you said, it, it had a huge level of success. And I think one of the things in my perspective that, that eventually drives projects to this magnitude is figuring out where is there a problem and how can I fit students in to fix a problem like this and how can I grow them to that level? And, you know, one of the most fundamental ways I can think of from a, from a hospital-based pharmacist perspective is looking at medication use evaluations and MUEs. 
Um, in my practice, like a lot of these MUEs have really, these MUEs have really laid the foundation for, you know, identifying what is a problem that our institution sees and how we can get to the next level. And, and Jason, I'm going to, I'm going to call on, on you here a little bit um, and talk to you. You know, you've worked in, in critical care, which is a little bit different than Ali and myself. Um, you know, I, I'd like to say the, the less, the less uh, interesting, but um, I'll give you critical care. Um, critical care and education, you've been tasked to do a number of cost savings initiatives from an institutional and inpatient perspective. And I wanted to dive into this a little bit. And I think, as I mentioned, in, MUEs can really get to root causes. And how do you get students involved in MUEs? And then again, I'll, I'll come back to Ali after, um, as I'm sure he's he's been a successor of many MUEs. I'll um I'll probably contrast myself a little bit with um Ali and just the nature of my job. I'm as much as I am an educator, like uh academics is not like a big uh, component of what I do. I'm not a big publisher, I'm not a big research powerhouse. Uh, I, I focus mostly in quality improvement and um institutional based projects. And so my outcomes maybe unless you get the unless you get the AMA involved. <sighs> yeah. Well, that was that was another <laughs> night at the bar fun time but uh my role is mostly focused on uh like institutional priorities and so my outcomes maybe look different um than uh than yours dr mcbride i, I think um well you know jason i think go ahead ali don't lose this train of thought this is an important train of thought as we go through and it's the fact that where do you start right you know critical care is critical um or else it would be like, you know, maybe long-term care facility, right? Mm -hmm. We don't actually have those in the hospital uh, unless you're a VA, but long story short, you have to start somewhere and not everyone can do what everyone else does, right? Because some people are academic, some people are not. And thus in many cases, where do you start? So if you're looking at a research project and you're a new practitioner, you know, within five years, you want to get into research, but you don't know how to do it some of the great pieces that you can actually align with your institution on is not like this big grandiose study, right? It's get your small wins, build that fortification or that foundation here for how to do research. And that can be, how do I look at data? Like, do I have an EMR system that actually pulls in the data? Do I have QI specialists? So that step allows you to make future movements as well. And I think for me, when you're starting about where, a QI project is great. Um, you know, a DUE is great because it builds on center-focused institutional perspectives, which may be a benefit. So you can look at calcitonin, for example. You can look at resburicase. And believe it or not, you know, um, many years ago, I was at an institution exactly like this, Jason. Uh, institution, I was just started my first job in pharmacy and before I was a research scientist. So I have a ton of research experience and the focus on research is not the search, it's the read because you keep on redoing it and redoing it and redoing it, right? And from that perspective, we looked at resburicase and at our site, we were giving full dose resburicase, 0.15 makes per K. And it, this is how it all started, Jason. Like this is where the epiphany hit. You know, it was like, it's almost like watching the, the Blues Brothers. We are on a mission from God, right? And like, and that was like my epiphany, right? The light shining on me. I feel like Belushi dancing in the church here, like doing my jig. But 
it was the fact that we had a dose of full dose resveratrol case, which is about 40 milligrams for an obese patient at that point in time, which if you remember, like resveratrol case is very high in cost. And yep, yeah, mula, mula, mula. <laughs> and it was for a uric acid level of 9.8. So we literally gave probably $20,000 worth of drug, $10,000 worth. I don't know what the, the current cost was back then. And essentially what had happened is you literally gave the cost of the drug to cover your DRG for that whole inpatient period of time, which means the hospital made no money. Your drug budget is off through your director of pharmacy is going to ask you about this in the PNT or the high cost subcommittee and you have to justify it. So I said, you know what, at Moffitt, you know, Gene Westin and the team did some great work in regards to looking at using lower dose. Let me do that here at Barnes Jewish. And lo and behold, we found that a 0.15 make per kg was equivocal to a 7.5 and six milligrams. And that was actually with a first year resident. And at that point in time, I got it. I actually addressed that overall piece of the puzzle for what is a, a great scientific study and also a great study or plausible study when it comes to cost measures for the institution. And that was it. Ollie, that was a, that was a great explanation. And, and I think um, really gets to the point of like kind of where I am in my career and maybe a little different uh, than, than yours. And I think that's a great example of how um, my perspective has shifted a little bit from like trying to take on small projects that build towards research and like a scientific question, but rather take the work that you did and utilizing quality improvement framework uh, implemented at our institution and utilize learners to, to start thinking about, okay, someone else has done phenomenal research to show that having a pharmacist at the bedside is uh, important for PERT. How do I go about operationalizing that at Boston Medical Center, which has a very different uh, you know, care setting than the original institution? Or in your case, uh, Ali, using case, how can I restrict or modify my doses to reduce costs, but also, you know, keep high quality outcomes. And I think that's a great, great discussion on like how it starts for you. And then it dovetails nicely into like what uh, I do from an institutional perspective to try and, um, you know, teach my residents how to improve care. Um, Cause one of the hardest things that we have to do is, is not just build research, though we need to do that and we need to teach people how to do that. We also need to teach people how to take that research and real world operationalize it. It's that's, this is such great discussion. I mean, I echo both of, I echo both of you here and it, it's really important and impactful to say like, right. an MUE in itself could, could be seen as just like a task for a student or resident, but if you teach them the whys and get them to really focus in on the root cause, why is this a problem? Like, why are we doing this? I think that that really helps facilitate learning and, and can, you know, getting back to like, you know, our, our, our motive here is, is really get back to how to use learners and balance the needs of an institution, right. With an MUE or something like this with the needs of a, with the needs of a learner that's going to grow professionally to recognize problems, to recognize how to figure out problems and eventually turn that into something else. I think over the last few years, every single, almost all of our, successful QI projects stemmed from an MUE that said, here's our problem. 
here's what a, a student or resident did. Let's fix the problem with a long, longer or longitudinal QI project. And I really think that that is, that is what a lot of us can do as preceptors to get better is give our stu give students, residents, the resources to be able to identify how do I do a successful MUE or some kind of baseline assessment to figure out what the problem is in an ambulatory setting, in an oncology setting, in a critical care setting, in an infectious disease setting, any of these settings that you're in, it's always about just understanding how to find a problem and understanding the magnitude of that problem. Uh, go ahead, Jason, go. you go first. Um, I, I, I need a refill. You, you keep on going. I want to get this done here. I think one of the things that, um, that Dave, that explanation brought up a, a great question for me and, and I would love to hear both of your opinions on this. Um, you know, we can very easily send a student off with a data collection form and say, hey, go fill this out on the next 450 patient charts that I have already pulled for you. But like, um, and that's like in quote unquote, I'm air quotes, I'm using air quotes as I'm doing this, like involving your student in research. But um, I particularly think about like my projects, like, and how I engage students in residents and learners in the process and understanding the process of research. And I'm curious, Dave, how do you do that for your quality improvement projects? And, and uh, Ali, how do you um, engage your residents and students in the process of learning research um, so that it's not just this one-sided, like, well, I have the research idea, I created it, you're going to do all the data collection. How do you avoid that? It's a, it's a really good question. I think like part of what I've done in my practice is come up with an idea, but let the, let the resident or let the student figure those pieces out for themselves. Let them, you know, I, I recently did um, an MUE with one of my last pharmacy students on IVIG usage at the hospital, right? I under, I, I had him and I challenged him to say, okay, I want you to look up IVIG and I want you to come to me and say, what is, what is the purpose of me asking you to look into IVIG at our institution? I want you to figure out and go through the exercise to figure out why was it important from our perspective to look at IVIG as an institution. And he came back with many different reasons. He said, well, this is a costly drug. I noticed this drug has been on shortage when he did his research. I noticed X, Y, and Z is a problem. And that conversation transpired into such a way that he was able to get to the point of me asking the question. And then to get to the step of the MUE, he came up with the data collection endpoints that he wanted to look at. So I challenged him and I said, what endpoints, if you're going to look at a cohort of patients that it received IVIG in our hospital, what are valuable things or valuable collection data points that you should collect that helps you figure out that problem that you just identified? And he was able to do that. And, you know, maybe this was a, a, a really like outlier student and, and someone that was really just strong and had that motivation and, and thought process. But I, I really think it's not. And I, I think if they understand and your student understands and as a preceptor, you can help give them that skill set of, of thinking, you know, critically themselves without just saying, here's X, I need a task done give them context for the task and it provides them so much more learning. And again, even, you know, I think even a few months ago, Jason, um, one of your students, I mean, we had a, a similar-ish project 
And Jason responded to me. I said, hey, do you have a student that could help me with something? And he, he responded and said, if you can explain the why and explain why this is impactful, then I will, then she will be happy to do it. And, you know, that really, it really clicked with me and, and something that is going to stay with me, right? If you can explain a student, why am I going to have a student do this? Well, what are they going to get out of this? It is so important. And I really encourage a lot of the listeners here to think through that and to think, how do I get to build students to, to think about the problem themselves so they can come up with the solutions. And in this case is the MUE. You know, I, I think we've, so there's a lot of discussions here and we're talking about real world evidence, right? So we're looking at just like MUEs and TUEs, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. And I think that's, let me take a step back here. When we're talking to the student, knowing their limitations as well upfront, they may say, well, you know, Jason, I only have maybe three hours a week to spend on this. I have kids. Um, I'm working maybe 30 hours a week because you know I'm a, maybe an older student or I don't have that many funds. I don't want to take up student loans. So we have to really grade those students. And, and it also based, it's based on the institution too. So does their college of phar- pharmacy allow for the motivation to do research? So like, you know, at the U of, a, U of A, every student has to do a research project for their senior project, which really motivates them to do research. And thus, in these cases, I was already able to get that blend a little bit early in or buy-in. But also, you know, how do you address that from the perspective of addressing with the overall student themselves? What do they know? What do they learn? And I think the biggest piece is we need to give them examples of how to do it in the past. We need to give them examples of projects. For example, a survey tool is a great project. We had a student do a survey of over 200 people addressing oral chemotherapy. And as we all know, oral chemotherapy is like hot diggity dogs. It's the hottest topic for the last 10 years, right? So it's like watching Star Wars, new episode every couple of, of, of years. Oh, we got a new movie. We got Mandalorian coming on board. We got, you know, Boba Fett. We got Obi-Wan. It's always a new variant on oral chemotherapy. So she did a survey. She took that survey and presented it at ENCODA a national conference. So a student in her third year was presenting at a national conference for the whole country for her research project. That was a survey. Um, I had another student do a systemic literature review, almost a meta-analysis of data, addressing biomarkers with CD30. And as Dave knows, you know, CD30 is a huge biomarker in alkyl inhibitors, but also was seen in other disease therapies as well. That student, Garrett Berger, won the ASHP Student Literature Award back in 2016. You know, and that's just to give you an example of what you could do. It's not just real world evidence, but for those who are doing real world evidence, you can take the information. We have two major studies that we had done because we use IV pentamidine for PJP or for those older people, PCP prophylaxis in the transplant setting or in other disease states. So we were doing this for years and an insurance company told us you can't do that. Well, lo and behold, when looking at pentamidine, if you do the actual inhaled, you need a negative pressure room, respiratory tech, and a whole load of other people. And the insurance company denied it. So we, the insurance company was asking to get to give us more money. <laughs> so think about this. The insurance company wants to give us more money for another process, but we're making it cheaper. So there's no incentive there for the insurance company to understand why it was cheaper to give IV pentamidine for the prophylaxis in these stem cell transplant patients. And we had a learner. She did the research, she published it. And as soon as we published it, we, stuck, we started getting more denials from insurance companies. 
We then actually showed the paper. It was approved. And then the institution got around the whole idea of denials or prior authorizations for this. In fact, that student-led, research-led project then was pulled into finance. And the finance team took that data, had it available at their hands in case of a denial as well. So that's just the one piece of that puzzle where we can take a look at the types of research which can affect the overall perspective of the patient population, the student learner, and the institutional bias in these cases too, for what we can bring through for our hospitals or health systems. That's awesome, Ali. It, it, I think it's so so great to hear like these these different experiences and these different success stories because it really is possible. As we as we probably are coming to the end of our our time period, I want to transition. Um, and, and ask you both actually a, a scenario where I'm sure, you know, I alluded to earlier, you getting too focused, laser focused on the actual intent of learning versus so opposite end of the spectrum and not focusing on the learner at all. And I guess, has there ever been a time in your career where you felt you were on one end of the spectrum, whether you were spending too much time with a student or you weren't spending any time at all and how you identified that in, in practice? So let's go to, um, I'll ask you, Ali, has that ever happened maybe even earlier in your career before you, before you became uh, more, more acclimated to the, to the research world? I mean, in terms of like having that laser focus versus that generality of where, oh, we have all these projects. Since I'm very tangential, um, no, I'll be very blunt. It, it hasn't happened. Uh, what has happened, though, is I have seen people focus on a project and then not tell me that the project was too hard for them because it was too focused on one thing. They didn't understand it. So in some cases, I had a medical resident. I had an intern, a medical intern. I also had farm students um, working on some projects where I had to talk about the project, let them only do five patients to address that rural data. And then as they were doing the data collection, they did it in my office. And I would be working, you know, working on orders, working with finance. They'd be in, in the next chair next to me. And literally they go, okay, Ali, this patient has hypothyroidism. Why? And then I take a five minute kind of, as we all do, preceptor tutorial, use five minutes to explain a whole day of worth of topic discussion. I would break down the HPA axis, talk about thyroid function, talk about hyper and hypothyroidism, talk about how it's regulated through the HPA axis overall and what drugs we use to recover that or bring it to within normal limit discussion. And so that's the way I've been able to say, if I was laser focused on a project and the student didn't understand, I taught them internal medicine or I taught them infectious disease, which may be a lot for preceptors to do, but if I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna do it right, which may be a fault or you know, maybe my fault in those cases. But if I have a student who's interested, I really think it's up to us to help guide them because you know as i my philosophy is i want to let my students fail in front of me not in front of the rest of the area but in front of me and that gives them confidence because they're so scared already there was somebody new who's a preceptor they haven't probably seen you in class teach too much so you have to make sure they feel comfortable with you so that they can open up to you about any issues with the data because if they make a mistake or don't actually ask the question on the data, your whole data set of 300 patients could be incorrect. And one thing I was gonna tell Jason about too is, if a, patient, if a 
student learner is overwhelmed with the number of patients on a data collection form. I do not want them to get overburdened. So I will break it up with either a team of people and even other pharmacists or physicians in the area, because the goal isn't to actually have them do 450 data collection pieces. Any preceptor who does that, that's a bad preceptor. It's to provide them with the understanding on how to do it and make changes to that collection form. And if you do that, like say, for example, I always say the first five patients you're, we're going to do together. If I see discrepancies, we go over it. Next 20 patients, you tell me about the issues that you saw, and then I'll let them do that. But I have been stuck in my residency. I've been stuck as a student where I was told to collect this many patients. And I had an Excel sheet of 450 different variables for 373 patients for my PGY2 project. That's a lot. Yeah. And I always took away from that, Jason. I'll end on this because on the transition, I see, I see a lot of you know kind of yeses on this. Take that away from them. Let them do 30, 40, 50, 60. Maybe they have a team, do 120 each. And then the team as a whole puts the data together, writes the manuscript, and they learn from that. This way they're interested and they're not burned out by it. And I'll leave that out because burnout is a huge discussion. Sorry, I'll transition over to you, Jason. No, no, no. I, I, Ollie, I think like Dave and I are over here on mute, nodding our heads, like smiling and laughing because like we totally agree. And like that, that was certainly my point in, in saying that is that like having you do data collection and just data collection on hundreds of patients or hundreds of data points is like um, after the first so many, the educational value starts to fall off. And, and I'll be honest with the both of you. I've also um, you know, I've made mistakes in how I precept MUEs and how I precept quality improvement projects and research. And um, particularly for me, the uh, area that um, I struggled with a lot was like, really under, making sure that the resident or the preceptor or the student understood the project. Um, and so Dave, that's why like when, when now I'm in the position that I am and people come to me wanting like quote unquote student resources to, to support their projects. Like I, I want to make sure that the student is getting the why out of it and really understanding the process. And I think Ali, you did a great job of explaining exactly what you need to do, like limit the n- amount of work they're going to do so that they get value out of what they are doing and they understand all of the steps. They understand why am I doing this project? They understand kind of um, how to analyze it, not just how to do data collection on a data data sheet and, and be like a minion uh, in a hidden closet somewhere. I will add to that, which you were talking about, Dave, didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanna keep on this topic because I think this is, a, maybe it's part two of our kind of podcast as I'm the guest here. But the one piece which you talked about is the data collection piece, right? The other piece that's missing, which I've had to do, and I'm not a great writer. I'm not like one of those people who's, who can just write like almost like, you know, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, where you're like, oh my God, this is a great journey. But I, I aspire to be that person, even at my age today of 22. But essentially it is the fact that we don't teach them how to write. Absolutely. Yeah, it certainly is a fantastic point. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure we could go, we could talk another 30 minutes or so on, on manuscript writing and, and Ali, we might need to bring you back for your experience there. Um, but as we come to our close, I think, you know, we're coming down to a, a transition point where um, we will be asking all of our guests um, a key question and a key takeaway. And that's what is one thing you took from a past preceptor or mentor that you incorporated into practice? So Ali, in a, 
Um, in a couple of words, what, what, what's the one thing that you, you kind of took away and, and are incorporating into practice? So I still do this today. Um, and that is something I've, I always point out is actually from Phil Johnson, who is my director of pharmacy at, at Moffitt Cancer Center. He was a fantastic human being, still is a fantastic human being today, and just saw the whole view. And one of the things that he always pointed to is, Ali, listen, you're doing a QI project, you're doing a project, it's okay to fail. Let, you know, it's okay to fail. And I've taken that really to heart because most of my life is failure. So any type of success I have, especially as lacrosse coach, um, as well as a clinician as well, really allows me to grow my team. And, and that confidence, the ability to work with team, to provide confidence for them and protect them, I think is something that's sometimes lost um, because you have a lot of preceptors. And I've seen it. Again, that's not bad about anybody, but they just get critical of the, of the actual young student or the learner. And that dissuades them from the future. But if you build their confidence first, let them fail, and then they succeed, their confidence level will be going through the roof. And then when they fail again and someone criticizes them, they won't take it to heart. They're like, yep, you're right, but here's why. They'll respond back. They'll have a great retort. And that, to me, is probably my, my biggest three words is let them fail, and they will succeed for the future. Ali, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think let them fail is a, a great mantra to have. And, and um, it's important in how you let them fail and, and rebuild them up as they transition in their career. And, and you're right, confidence is, is very important. So thank you for sharing. Um, you know, we, we love to ask that question of all our guests. And, and I appreciate you taking the time here today uh, to chat with Dave and I. Maybe we can uh, do a quick toast to a successful first guest on the pod. All right. Well, I, I really thank you for taking the time and like, seriously, I really appreciate it. You've always been mentor. Great, great person. Great, great friend now. Um, so again, I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to work with us on this. And again, I think your experience speaks to itself and, um, you know, I think it really will, will resonate with, with listeners. So thanks again. Thank you guys. Um, don't blow up your hand. And if you have a chance, please watch Glaucoma Flecken and uh, being on service during this weekend as he brings in the ophthalmologist, the orthopedic surgeon, the trauma surgeon, <laughs> and a few other ER people too, which is pretty funny. Yeah, as the, the trauma pharmacist in the group, I'm gonna say, make sure you wear your helmet. That's right. <laughs> Everything that you do, don't get hurt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys. Enjoy right, guys. the rest of your afternoon, okay? See ya. You too, man. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. We thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone, send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Kroll. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening.